This podcast contains violent adult themes and is not suitable for younger audiences. The eyes were very cold and lifeless, just black. I mean, the guy was a true psychopath. She was left in a creek bed. He treats females like chattels. He doesn't see them as being human. He was an absolute creeper, a guy that would go out on his own and pick vulnerable people. She was out in the open. She was naked. He's, he's done something evil. Her throat had been cut. You're in a cell with a psychopath. Pulling a wild animal loose on society. He has no remorse. I'm Michelle Gately, and this is Predator. In the last episode, I told you about the massive search for Kira Steinhardt, who was abducted by Leonard John Fraser on the 22nd of April 1999 as she walked home from school in Rockhampton. At the end of the last episode, you heard her mum, Teresa, talking about how she had to change the narrative around her daughter's death to cope with her loss. For me to survive, I turned it around. And she is the hero of the story. That she caught him and put him in jail. That she saved the other girls from being hurt. And the ones that were killed have been brought back to their family. That's how I've survived. I'm fine if I live that. This is an admirable view to hold because the alternative that's hard to live with is that the legal system failed Kira. In this episode, we're going to see how the very scale of Fraser's monstrous crimes meant that he almost got away with Kira's murder. My boss, editor of The Morning Bulletin, Fraser Pierce, is going to explain how the trial unfolded. Although he's the editor now, back then, Fraser was a young court reporter who followed this trial. To avoid confusion with names here, I'll be referring to Fraser Pierce as Phrase. Sometimes you'll hear him refer to Leonard John Fraser as Lenny, which was how he was known to acquaintances and police in Rockhampton. Phrase talks us through the atmosphere at the morning bulletin after Cura was taken. I guess it was a day-by-day episode where it was a giant jigsaw puzzle that was coming together. But yeah, it was a fairly... Um, animated dynamic newsroom and of course always that element of um, we can't believe it's happened to us and um, trying to get our heads around it the enormity and why it had happened but the whole town was not on edge but it was just a um, an elevated emotion running through the whole community at the time because Everyone just wanted this to save this girl beyond hope and because it's possible. In the last episode, I told you Fraser showed police where he had left Kira's naked body after about two weeks of questioning. Once Fraser was charged with murder, he went through a series of court appearances, including a committal hearing at Rockhampton. In these hearings, a magistrate listens to evidence from the prosecution and the defence to decide if it's strong enough to go to trial before a jury. Fraser's defence team successfully argued that the local community was so angry that there was no chance he'd get a fair trial in Rockhampton, so the case was moved to Brisbane. The trial started on the 14th of August 2000. The morning bulletin sent Fraser down to Brisbane to cover the four-week trial. 
Yeah, I remember the pressure on the first day. I remember incredible pressure because you think, I just don't want to blow the trial. And I was, you're worried. You're always worried that you're going to make the mistake that could cause a mistrial. But even though that wouldn't really happen, it was just a constant stress. Court trials are governed by strict laws in Australia. It's nothing like what you'll see on Making a Murderer. If journalists aren't careful and report something which could prejudice a jury, the judge could order that the trial be aborted. Journalists and media companies might also be charged with contempt of court. I remember the start of the trial, and there was possibly six to eight journalists there, and um, we're all pretty stacked in the right-hand corner of the courtroom and not very far away from Lenny Fraser at all. The um, the key points in the, in the Lenny trial were of during his interview when the police just let him talk and talk and talk and just let him roll on and he gradually gave away the information that led to the discovery of the body etc and then taking the police to the body and then offering an apology to the family and then he's one of the few times he showed emotion was when his girlfriend at the time of the abduction who gave evidence of course against him I mentioned she was pregnant to someone else and it was one of the few times he showed emotion by rubbing out an imaginary dot on the table with his thumb. But um, his eyes were very cold and lifeless, just black type of, you know, you hear about that looking into an animal's eyes or a goat's eyes, that was Lenny. Um, and, but he was, a, he was a very powerfully built man and um, a fair bit of ego around his, that type of, um, you could tell his ego as he spoke to police. It was clear from the start of the trial that this crime was evil, but no one was prepared for what would be revealed when the jury returned their verdict. Kira's cause of death was never able to be determined, but her skull had been fractured and her throat cut. Police also couldn't confirm if Kira had been sexually assaulted, but they alleged that this was the case given Fraser did have a history of sexually motivated crimes. He also told police he wouldn't take them to the body because he knew DNA evidence was only viable for a limited number of days. It's worth noting here that Fraser always maintained he was, quote, not a child molester. But it's hard to judge what's fact and fiction given how many times his story changed during questioning and later in prison. There was a strong forensic case against Fraser, including traces of Kira's blood and hair in the boot of his red sedan. That was the same make and model as the car spotted speeding away from the crime scene. Police also found traces of Kira's blood on a knife Fraser had hidden in his house. One of the things which had convinced police of Fraser's guilt was his appalling criminal record, but that couldn't be revealed during the trial. When someone is tried in Australia, their criminal history is suppressed from the jury so they can judge guilt based on the crime alone and not previous actions. Prosecutors had to be particularly careful with the eyewitness evidence from Ben Robson. That was the prison guard I spoke about in the last episode. Remember, Ben drove past Fraser at the scene and recognised him from working at the prison just north of Rockhampton. The problem was how to explain in court why Ben recognised Fraser without revealing he had been an inmate. Fraser remembers it almost slipped out during cross-examination, but the judge decided it wasn't obvious enough to force a mistrial. Fraser admits he was nervous the jury would return a not guilty verdict. In that how did Lenny get the body from 
the riverbank where he was seen taking it down Yapoon Road and the window of time to be back in the evidence that the police were able to determine because they went outside and um, were um, staking out his his flat. And of course Lenny knew they were coming because he'd, he'd seen the um, present officer and he knew, the, he knew the game was up. And that's why he moved the body again, I think. Of course, if there was anyone who had cause for concern over the trial outcome, it was Teresa. Not only did she have to sit through distressing descriptions of her daughter's death, she had to face the man accused of murdering Kira and sit in the same room as him for four weeks. I was the first witness up to tell him because I was the last one to see Kira. And he intimidated me. It was really scary to look at him. Teresa has shared with us a letter she wrote to herself during the trial. Letters were like journals for Teresa, who would also write to Kira even after she died. This letter was dated Monday, the 21st of August, 2000. She writes about leaving the courtroom to cry in the toilet and asking herself again and again why it was Kira he chose. She says, I'm scared to look at anyone or smile at anyone just in case it hurts my daughter's case. I cry again as I feel this may be the reason why I cry. I feel I don't wish to lose this case for my stupid action. She talked to us about the moment the jury handed down a guilty verdict. But after the fourth week being there for that long and then finding out the verdict of it, I was joyful and apparently he gave us a dirty look but I was excited I was just relieved that he was going to jail never coming out that she actually got him in there. Once someone is found guilty of a crime their criminal history can be made public. Those revelations are some of the strongest memories Fraze has of this trial. And I do remember one of those moments I'll never forget in my life will be the guilty verdict and then the prosecutor reading through Fraser's previous criminal history and the, the and the incredible relief in about three or four members of the jury who were visibly moved with just displaying an incredible relief mixture of relief, I think, and anger. You know, though, though obviously the people had difficulty because of all the circumstantial evidence in, um, in finding a guilty verdict. And um, I'll never forget that moment. Now I'm going to talk you through Fraser's life and criminal history the same way the jury would have found out at the end of Kira's trial. Fraser was born in North Queensland in the town of Ingham in 1951. When he was six, his family moved to Sydney. At 14, Fraser dropped out of school and was soon convicted of his first criminal offences and sentenced to 12 months in a Gosford boys' home for stealing. His court appearances increased throughout his later teenage years until he committed his first known sexual assault in October 1972. The woman Fraser raped was a 37-year-old French tourist. He attacked her as she took photos in Sydney's Botanic Gardens. The mother of two young children was in Australia with her husband for a conference. Fraser attacked her from behind, brutally beating and raping her. The woman's injuries included a fractured cheekbone. 
but he wasn't caught by police. In fact, it wasn't until two years later that Fraser would confess to that first vicious attack. Between October 1972 and June 1974, Fraser was in and out of prison on robbery and dishonesty charges before setting out on what was described as a sexual assault rampage, where he raped one woman and attempted to assault two more. It was while police were interviewing him about those attacks that he confessed to raping the French tourist back in 1972. In December 1974, he was sentenced to 21 years in prison for those attacks. A prison psychiatric examination found Fraser to be a psychopath with no impulse control. He was just 23 years old. Despite this report and the violent assaults he had been convicted of, Fraser served just seven years of the 21 he was sentenced to. He then returned to North Queensland where he broke into a house in Mackay and assaulted a woman. He was sentenced to two months jail for aggravated assault for that offence. From 1982 to 1985, Fraser had a relationship with a Mackay woman, and the pair had a daughter together. Then Fraser returned to his predatory ways. He stalked a woman during her beach walks at Shoal Point near Mackay for several days before brutally raping her and leaving her for dead in the sand dunes. This time, he was sentenced to 12 years in jail. At this trial, Justice Des Derrington said Fraser was a dangerous and violent rapist who failed to realise the enormity of his cruel and cowardly crimes. He told Fraser his victims would consider him the equivalent of a filthy animal. This time, Fraser wasn't getting out early. He served every second of his sentence at Etna Creek, just north of Rockhampton, and was released in January 1997. He lived in the coastal town of Yapoon and then Mount Morgan before moving to Rockhampton. This is where he committed the crimes we're exploring in this series. Fraser was sentenced to life in prison for Cura's murder. During sentencing, Teresa read out a victim impact statement. We asked her to read some of it out again. Kira, she has been a big heart. If you didn't know her by now, you will. From day one that she was born, she had blonde hair and blue eyes. She always helped others. Everyone in her street knew her. She would say hello to everyone and play. My life is over. What can I say? When Kira died, I died. Every night I wish I died. Every morning when I wake up, I see Connor and remember myself that what would he think if I did die and left him all alone? Nights come again and he's asleep. It's so hard to tell someone what we're going through unless you've been there. No sleep, bad dreams, crying every night, yelling at everyone, blaming everyone, not eating, house is a mess, always bills pile up. It's left a big hole in our life and our heart. She was my mate, my friend, my daughter, number one. Kira, key to my heart. That statement gives you a sense of how Teresa was coping immediately after Kira's murder, but she also shared with us some of the difficulties she faced after the trial. What Teresa talks about next is not easy to listen to and involves discussions around self-harm and suicide. If you're affected by this, please skip ahead. We'll include some helpline numbers at the end of this episode. 
I don't know what I would have done if uh, they never got Kira back. I went back to work. Had to go back to work. Keep myself busy, I suppose, would be the same. This is after they found Kira. Then we would go to counselling and we would talk, I would talk about Kira and uh, how to handle it and all that. And uh, he was a nice guy. And I always talked about Kira, but the ex didn't. We were to be married. Only because Kira wanted us to be married. Because Kira wanted to have the last name called Kruther like her brother. Not because of the father or me, because of Connor. So I agreed to marry him for the ex to adopt. And then when she was killed, I, I even said it in all my family. Well, what's the use of being married? So we weren't going to get married. But because Rockhampton heard about us to be married, it sort of threw us into that. And it sort of made me forget and focus on something else. So we got married. That lasted one year, not even a year. And then the court, the court went for about four weeks. So when that was all over and we all went back to our life and I went back to work, then I would come home and I didn't feel like doing anything. I didn't want to be a mum. I didn't want to give Connor any attention. I just felt that I'm not a mum anymore. So he suffered. So I took him out to the allotment where they found Kira. And I thought about killing ourselves, him and me. And he was laying on my lap. And I looked at him. And I couldn't do it because it, he was so innocent. And it was selfish and unfair that I would take his life just for me to be with my daughter. So I said that I was leaving. So I left Connor with his father and I left. And I always thought about suiciding myself and killing myself. It'd be so easy. But then this little figure in the back of my head, what about Connor? He will need you later on in life. He will think that I did not love him as much as I loved Kira. So I didn't. I just worked, save, but was still lost. What really hurts is that someone took her life for no reason. If she was to die of car accident, cancer, 
I can accept it. That is a reason, an explanation. But no human has a right to take another human's life. There is a reason Kira died, and it's an uncomfortable truth. Kira died because the legal system made a terrible mistake in letting a predator out of prison. But Kira wasn't the only person failed by our legal system. A number of other women were too. At home in Rockhampton, four other women were missing, and it was beginning to look like the work of a serial killer. If this reporting has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline Australia on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Predator is a production of The Morning Bulletin, a News Corp publication. It's written by me, Michelle Gately, and recorded and produced by Alan Renica. Thanks goes to Caroline Graham from Bond University and Astrid Edwards from Bad Producer Productions for consultation and advice throughout. Margaret Wood provided transcription services. Our thanks also to Eddie Cowie, Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Burgoyne, Alan Quinn, Wayne Petherick, Fraser Pierce, and especially Teresa Steinhardt, who also provided audio of Kira for the project. For full music credits, see the show notes. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on Apple iTunes or listen and look through exclusive photo galleries and stories at themorningbulletin.com.au.